From the newsroom of The Washington Post. Hi there, is the mayor in? Marissa Lang with The Washington Post. Hey, it's Dossie. I wanted to pick your brain on the truck. Hi, my name's Jenna Johnson. This is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Tuesday, April 14th. Today, why reopening the economy won't be as simple as flipping a switch, the security concerns over Zoom, and reading in uncertain times. We're all so eager to get out and about again. I know I need a haircut. But the reality is the economy is not going to go from zero to 100% overnight. I'm Heather Long, the economics correspondent at The Washington Post. This isn't going to be like hitting the light switch and having things magically come back. It's going to be a long, slow recovery with a lot of probably starts and stops and a lot of businesses operating at more like 50 percent, not 100 percent for the foreseeable future. We need both businesses to feel comfortable to reopen. They need to put in place safety measures. Customers have to feel okay to venture out again. And there's just going to be this fear factor that lingers, especially for people who are older or who have those underlying health conditions that keep them at risk of catching this coronavirus and having it be potentially deadly. And I know for me, I mean, I feel like I spend every day fantasizing about all the things that I'm going to do after this is all over, that I'm going to go to my favorite restaurants or go to concerts or go to clubs and and be around people. But I think what actually will happen is that when this starts to be over, I'm just going to be really afraid of being like that one dummy who goes to a restaurant on the first day that I can and then immediately gets sick because this thing won't actually be over. And I feel like a lot of people will be fearful about that. Exactly. And as you know, consumer spending is the heart of the U.S. economy. And right now, consumers, even when we get the okay to do some venturing out, I know I'm the same way. I'm going to be a little bit tentative to resume my daily routine that I had before the pandemic. And a lot of people feel that way. So that's why this is going to take a long time. And the worst thing that could happen would be to reopen restaurants and other businesses too quickly and then have the coronavirus cases spike again and deaths spike again, that will only make people even more fearful. The ideal is that we would have a vaccine or have widespread testing so people could really feel confident. Do I have this virus or not? Does my neighbor have this virus or not? But the reality is that's a couple months off, maybe a year or more in the case of the vaccine. So we're going to be in this weird limbo economy, this weird transition period where we're going to have to navigate. Is it okay to fly airplanes with people sitting in every other seat? Is it okay to open restaurants with people sitting in every other table? That's going to be a bit of trial and error. 
And then there's also the issue of supply, right? That this isn't just about customers demanding the things that they used to pay money for, but whether there is actually the supply to give people those things. You're right. Even for those factories where it may be easier on some levels to reopen, they still need the products, the materials to be there so they can make cars or they can make washing machines or other products. And right now, the global supply chain is really broken Different countries are obviously struggling with this virus around the world. And what I've been keeping a close eye on is the port of Los Angeles. It's one of the busiest ports in the world, and it's where a lot of goods coming from China and South Korea and other parts of Asia come into the United States through that L.A. port. Here's what's interesting. A month ago, that port was a ghost town. Almost no ships were coming in from anywhere in the world, especially Asia. Here in April and mid-April, as China and South Korea have seen somewhat of a recovery, the ships are starting to sail again. So there are ships returning to that port, but it's not at 100%. People tell me it's more like 60% of the volume at the moment, and that may not change. The executive director of the port says that he doesn't think they're going to be back at, at normal capacity probably for a year, and I think that's really telling. And if you do have this situation then that you're describing as a limbo economy, where you have all different kinds of businesses and industries that are working at 50 or 60 or 70 percent for the foreseeable future, how will that affect the ability of the economy to recover? It's a huge impact. This is almost feels like we're in a lottery situation where some businesses are going to get these small business administration loans. Some are not. That feels a bit like a lottery. The same thing with as businesses try to reopen in different parts of the country. Some are going to be more successful than others. Some are going to have customers return more quickly than others. And this is such a hard situation to navigate. You just don't know if you're going to win that lottery or not, to put it bluntly. And so a lot of business owners are doing what you would expect them to do, and they're just being really cautious. They're not spending money. They're canceling plans, expansion plans for the future. And that has a ripple effect. It's a domino effect. Once one business owner or once one customer stops spending, that has a chain reaction across the economy. And that's another reason economists just don't think we're going to be anywhere near, quote, normal uh, for a year or more. And I think there were a lot of small businesses that were really banking on this idea that they were going to be able to get help from the government, get a small loan, get a, get a grant, but that it's becoming clear that there's just not enough money in the stimulus bill for all these businesses who need it. And also there are big questions about who is getting this money and whether it's being fairly allocated to the people who need it most. That's right. The reality is we have about 30 million small businesses in the United States and the government allotted uh, $350 billion for those small businesses. And if you do the math, it's it's not really enough. And that's what we're seeing right now. A lot of small business owners are so frustrated. I talked to a guy the other day who um, had called the SBA from Michigan to check on his uh, his loan, and he was caller 17,000-something. Um, hmm. I mean, it's just mind-boggling just to try to navigate this process to get 
money. And so there could be some bankruptcies in the coming weeks if, if business owners aren't able to get this money. But I think my biggest fear is that we're going to see more bankruptcies at the end of the year and early next year, that people will get some sort of financing eventually. Hopefully the government may do more loans and get more money out there. So it will eventually come, we hope. But people are going to limp by. You know, I talked to a brewery owner in South Carolina and he's like, look, you know, yeah, I could try to reopen at 50%, try to do the thing where every other table is filled, but that's not enough money coming in to pay my bills. And the loan will help for a few months, but you know, if he gets to September, October, November, and they're still operating in this limbo economy world, that's going to be a really difficult choice for him and many other business owners. Can I keep my doors open for how long? So for a lot of these business owners, it's not just the question of can you get through the coronavirus economy? It's can you get through this limbo halfway economy for many, many months after that? Yes. And the same is true for many Americans. We know that 17 million Americans have lost their jobs or had severely reduced hours. And this limbo economy is not going to need all those workers back. If a company is operating at 50%, 60%, they only need half the workforce. Economists predict that the unemployment rate in this country is probably going to hit 15% in the next month or two. That's the highest basically since the Great Depression. But by the end of the year, economists predict that the unemployment rate will still be close to 10%. So that tells you they expect some workers to go back, but there's still going to be basically as many people unemployed by Christmas as there was at the worst point of the Great Recession. One in 10 people are out of work. That's going to make everyone, even if they feel safe with the coronavirus, very hesitant to go out and spend when there's so much uncertainty about whether people will have jobs to return to. Heather Long is an economics correspondent for The Post. So what is Zoom and why is it so popular right now? So Zoom is the hot new video call app, which is interesting because there's a billion video call apps, it feels like, from Microsoft and Google and Skype. But Zoom has sort of come out of nowhere to be the thing that everybody is using almost all the time, especially as we're all sort of trapped indoors. My name is Drew Harwell, and I'm a reporter at The Washington Post covering technology. So you're seeing Zoom work meetings and conference calls. Lots of schools are shifting onto Zoom, universities, and all of these like, you know, relics of social life are moving onto Zoom too. So you're seeing happy hours and book clubs and weddings and funerals and, you know, official government meetings. And are there are there numbers about how many people have started using Zoom just in the last month or so now that we're all stuck inside our houses? Yeah, back in December, they had about 10 million users, and those were all sort of in a workplace. Now they're up to more than 200 million around the world using Whoa. it all the time. So 20 times as many people are using Zoom now. Yeah, and there's like, you know, thousands of schools using it, you know, thousands of workplaces. So everybody has sort of flooded into Zoom almost overnight. And, you know, it's it's sort of raising these other questions. 
So what are those issues that are being brought up now that that this company is experiencing this like massive overnight growth? Yeah, so there are some basic software security and privacy concerns with the app that are just sort of now becoming apparent as everybody sort of scrutinizes it with fresh eyes. And, you know, there are things that could expose people's computer to hacks from other people. There are problems that could, you know, lead people's videos to be viewed online by strangers. There are sort of security flaws that could put people's computers at risk of being like taken over and have, you know, people be able to look through their webcams and listen through their microphones. And there's also the issue of recording these calls. And, and Zoom has a mechanism by which you can basically click a record button and the whole thing saves and you can go back to it later. But it seems like there's also a risk in that too, in terms of who owns that recording. Yeah, that's right. So most Zoom calls are live streamed, they're not saved. And once they're done, they're gone forever. But there's also, yeah, really easy recording setting that anybody can sort of click on. And a lot of, you know, college professors or teachers have done it where they've recorded the class and then they've posted it up so students in other time zones can watch it whenever they want. I think that's a good thing. But anytime there is a recording made and saved and published online in some cases, there's a potential that it can be sort of saved by somebody else or, you know, misused in some way. And, you know, during our reporting, we were able to find like thousands of Zoom video calls that somebody had recorded either knowingly or unknowingly and then published online. They in a lot of these cases, they put them in like Amazon or Google web storage and they should have put a password on their account, but didn't. And so anybody could sort of search for the Zoom kind of file name and and find them. Wait, so so you actually did that? You just like searched for Zoom files like on Google and just found recordings of people's meetings? Yeah, like you can go on Google. There are some other search engines that look in some of these open storage accounts uh, called buckets. You can put in the sort of default Zoom file name using the file convention that Zoom has used and out pops like thousands of these Zoom calls. And these were calls, you know, I talked to the people who were in some of them because these were like small business meetings. One was like a support group for lesbian women. Some were meetings between like psychiatrists and, and their clients. So these were like really sensitive calls and these people did not know that that they were recorded and and saved online and and they were sort of you know really unnerved that like somebody like me or someone else could could find them and so that's going to be an issue with any video call i think zoom could have done some things to make those video files less easy to find but you know anytime we have these sensitive meetings being recorded and and saved online people are just going to inadvertently get it wrong. And so I think that's something we need to think about too, as our entire life shifts onto online video. Are we doing the things we need to do to keep those videos only among the people we want them to be and, and not sort of misused and, and saved by other people down the road? And then I keep hearing people talk about this, this idea of Zoom bombing, that people's Zoom calls are being Zoom bombed. What is that? And how does that happen? Yeah, so Zoom bombing is like a huge problem. And, you know, the internet is just a platform ripe with misconduct, like people just acting badly. And, you know, Zoom is sort of vulnerable to that because 
The default Zoom a couple weeks ago was to just open a meeting without a password. And a lot of people were sort of creating these Zoom calls. And then these trolls were finding open meeting rooms, sneaking in. And then when the other participants on the call least expected it, just spewing all sorts of hateful crap like racial slurs and posting pornography in Alcoholics Anonymous meeting. People would be like dancing with bottles of bourbon. All of this just like really mean, like cruel stuff. And, you know, people sneaking into like elementary school classes and like work meetings and like social clubs and trying to like sow chaos and and upset people. How is it that that all these other people are getting access if this is supposed to be limited to just the people who know what the link is for the call? Yeah. So there were a few problems. One was that a Zoom meeting just has a nine digit ID that if you don't have a password, anybody can figure out and anybody can sneak in and and no one's the wiser until it's too late. The other problems were, though, that some people were posting their Zoom meeting IDs onto social media. And so some trolls were just able to sort of search through social media you know, and find those meeting IDs and just jump in. Some people were doing like these big calls where they were letting anybody in. And so they were just sort of trusting that the audience would be cool. And then strangers would come in and they would either like spew stuff on the microphone or they would use this screen sharing feature in Zoom to take over the video feed and like post up a bunch of, you know, hateful stuff. So how has the company responded to these issues and the fact that there clearly isn't enough security in place for for many of these calls? So Zoom has been really interesting because they have effectively declared all hands on deck. They saw these concerns happening and the Zoom chief has been really open about like losing sleep over this stuff. He said they're freezing like new features for the next several months. Everybody in the company is devoted to working on patching a lot of these security and privacy things. And one of the big sort of changes they've done already is changing some of these defaults for people who use it. They're they're making like passwords be the default for all meetings. You can't just unknowingly create a room that anybody can join. They've also made a couple features useful, like the waiting room feature where the host has to allow you into the room. These are basic functionalities that were already in the app, but people are using Zoom for the first time. They've got a million other things going on. They're taking care of their family. They're worried about the coronavirus. They're not like pulling through each of these settings. So any little change like that, I think, is going to make a big difference in terms of removing the anxiety from people and removing the potential for harm to happen. Um, but, you know, there's still sort of questions of like, can they do more to stop these these Zoom bombing attacks? And can they do more to like keep people's computers safe? Well, especially when you think about the fact that up until this point, they were primarily a platform that was used by businesses and and maybe people who would be more likely to take their, their cybersecurity more seriously or be thinking about it while they're conducting business meetings. But when you have people who are like hosting their Seder on Zoom or who are, you know, trying to like wrangle a classroom full of first graders into a web call, it feels like that was not the intentional design of this program. That was not the circumstances under which people thought that this was going to be used. 
Totally. Yeah. And that's one of the most fascinating things about this is that Zoom was a totally boring enterprise business to business, like IT official run video app before all of this happened. And now it is the communication medium for pretty much everyone in the country and around the world. Even, you know, this is where our lives are playing out is video apps like Zoom. This is like our connection to our family and our friends. And so it was never really intended to be that lifeblood of communication. And yet it finds itself there. Drew Harwell writes about technology for The Post. And now, one more thing. We've been reaching out to authors to hear what they've been reading during these uncertain times. Here's J. Courtney Sullivan, a New York Times bestselling author. My comfort read for this particular moment might be most relevant to people in the same position I'm in, which is sheltering in place with small children. Uh, My kids are one and two years old, and it's just basically bedlam around here. These are the moments when I turn to one of my most beloved books, Shirley Jackson's memoir, Life Among the Savages. Jackson is probably best known for her horror stories and novels like The Lottery and The Haunting of Hill House. Uh, But she was also a mother of four with an eye for the absurdities, frustrations, and joys of parenting small children. And in Life Among the Savages, she just chronicles it all so beautifully. The book was first published in 1953. It's laugh out loud funny, a little bit dark, and way ahead of its time. Of course, it's unlikely that I'll get a chance to actually read this book or anything else besides Little Blue Truck and Jobs for Bears for the foreseeable future, but just seeing it on my bookshelf brings me no end of comfort, and I hope it might do the same for some of you. J. Courtney Sullivan is a writer in New York. Her latest book is called Friends and Strangers. It comes out in June. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. You can learn more about the stories in today's show at postreports.com. And join the conversation online using the hashtag PostReports. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post. 